At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Overflow, from Him, through us, for all, as we explore Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Together, we'll focus our attention on the gifts of God and see that we're not meant to keep His blessings to ourselves, but to live as vessels of His abounding grace. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all again to worship, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus once more, and to continue to learn from his word and gather together to encourage one another and glorify him. Um, If we haven't met yet, my name's C.T. Eldridge, the campus pastor here, and we're grateful that you've joined us. Let's continue to worship the Lord by listening to the scriptures, listening to his word. We're starting a new sermon series this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We're going to look at these couple of chapters buried in the middle of 2 Corinthians, the letter known as as 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible and you're going to follow along, um, 2 Corinthians is towards the beginning of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, then the letter of Romans, then 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So 2nd Corinthians is a third of Paul's letters as they're ordered in the New Testament. And we're going to be in 2nd Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 over the next five weeks, I believe it is. So the Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth. And there's several times that Paul writes to Corinth and also revisits Corinth after having planted this church. And at least two of the letters we have recorded for us in history. Scholars debate maybe there was four letters he wrote um, because he references different letters to them. If you add all of them up, there's maybe four, maybe only three. Only two of them have been preserved for us, First and Second Corinthians. So the apostle planted the church in Corinth And then a lot of trouble began after he left. And there were teachers who came in um, who tried to undermine the Apostle Paul's ministry and and tried to kind of take over influence within Corinth, within the Corinthian church. And now the Apostle Paul is writing back to them to explain his ministry, to defend his ministry. And that's a lot of what takes place in chapters 1 through 7. He's explaining his ministry of the gospel um, in light of these false teachers. This is true ministry of the gospel. And then in chapters 10 through 13, he's defending his apostleship. Um, Again, he he goes back to this because others were, were trying to undermine his ministry. But buried within these two larger sections are chapters 8 through 9, where the apostle Paul is addressing the gift of the Macedonian church, churches, which is making its way towards the Jerusalem church. Because you remember, even within the book of Acts, the gospel begins there, but persecution happens. Within the first several chapters of the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, the apostle John are arrested. Um, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the leaders of the early church, is stoned to death. And the Christians are driven out of Jerusalem. And so now these other churches, trouble continues to happen over the next several decades. And now these other churches that have begun are sending a gift, likely money, 
um, to the Jerusalem church in order to help care for them. Um, Because identifying with Christ disabled them from getting jobs and created all sorts of hardships. And so there's this collection of money that's working its way from these other churches back to the Jerusalem church to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing in chapters 8 and 9. And he's trying to encourage the Corinthian church to take part in this gift, to take part in caring for the Jerusalem church with generosity. And so it gives us a chance to study and understand what the New Testament teaches about generosity and about giving more broadly. And so that's what we've come to through this sermon series that we've titled Overflow and really focusing on God's call on our lives towards generosity. So let's get into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we get people to give? How do we get people to give up what belongs to them? Well, there are several common strategies that we often utilize. First, we could simply say force. We simply use force to take something from someone and then give it to another person. An example of this growing up, my family had golden retrievers for dogs, and there was one of our dogs that would get a ball or a shoe in his mouth, and I mean, those things would clamp down on whatever object they had, and the only way to get it back was to get your hands in that dog's slimy, fang-filled mouth and pry it out. And sometimes you can use this strategy when trying to get kids to share toys. Oh, you don't wanna share your toy with your brother? Well, I'm going to take it from you and give it to him. That's force, right? We're getting people to give by forcing them to give. Another strategy, a very common strategy, is guilt. Shaming people to the point of giving up what's theirs. You have so much money. You should give some away. So the implicit message when we say things like this in that way is, you are selfish. You are greedy. You are unloving. Those are messages of judgment, right? Trying to create a sense of shame that will motivate the person to give. 
So some sweet-toothed parents may have resorted to this strategy last weekend after the egg hunts when their kids are hoarding and hiding all of their Easter egg candy, unwilling to give any to the person who bought them the Easter egg candy in the first place. You've got all that candy, more than I will ever even allow you to eat, and you can't share any. So what are we really saying? You are a hog. You are stingy. You are mean. Those are messages that cause people to feel guilty, to feel shame. Okay, I guess I'll give you some. That's giving out of guilt. Another one I'll mention is compassion. Oftentimes, compassion is elicited in order to motivate people to give. The classic example of this is the Sarah McLachlan Humane Society commercials, where she's asking you to give your money to the Humane Society and or asking you to give space in your home and family to one of these dogs or cats. And throughout the commercial, the background music is Sarah McLachlan singing, I will remember you. And it's got this really sad tune. And meanwhile, they're showing pictures of these desperate animals just in really bad shape, usually in cages, with these distressed looks on their faces. And I'm like, all right, I gotta change the channel until this commercial is over. I cannot watch this. What they're trying to do is invoke sadness, which produces compassion, so that you'll give. Give money, give space in your home for a dog or whatever. But how do we get people to give? How would God have us motivate people to give up what belongs to them? Sometimes force, sometimes guilt, sometimes compassion, and I'm sure we could think of others. And there may be some legitimacy at different times for these three strategies, but the Apostle Paul lays out a different strategy for motivating generosity in these first several verses. And it's a strategy that doesn't rely on force, doesn't rely on guilt, and doesn't rely on making someone feeling overly sad. Instead, Paul calls us to practice grace-driven generosity. Practice grace-driven generosity. God's grace towards us is the motivator that produces true God-honoring generosity. In other words, when we realize, when we internalize that we are recipients of God's grace, then we become grace-driven givers of our resources. And in these first verses of chapter 8, the way the apostle calls us to grace-driven generosity is by reflecting on the example of the church's in Macedonia. So let's see this. Again, verse 1, the apostle says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonian churches. So Paul is going to eventually describe here the gracious generosity of the Macedonian Christians. But that's not where he starts. He starts first by naming the gracious generosity of God toward the Macedonian Christians. 
He says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonians. So he could have said, I want you to know about the grace of the Macedonian Christians. But that's not what he says. He says, I want you to know about the grace of God at work in the Macedonian Christians, prompting them to give graciously. That's grace-driven generosity. It's generosity motivated not by our sense of duty. It's generosity motivated not out of the good of our own hearts. It's generosity motivated by the truth of what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. God has done for us more than we could ever quantify He created us and gave us life, and in Christ, he redeemed us and gave us new life. So the good news of Jesus is not about what you can do for God. It's about what he has done for us. God sent Jesus to take our place in death. God raised Jesus so that we too could experience new life. And now God gives his Holy Spirit to all who trust in him. So as Christians, we are recipients of God's matchless, immeasurable grace. And it's out of the knowledge of that grace. And it's out of the continued working of God's grace among us that we're empowered to give. Paul says, brothers, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonian churches because he wants the Corinthians, he wants us to practice grace-driven generosity. And in the rest of these verses, he's going to lay out for us a further detailed picture of the Macedonians' example of generosity. So we're going to see four marks of grace-driven generosity. First, this kind of generosity includes giving through poverty and affliction. Giving through poverty and affliction. So let's see this in the text. Start again in verse one and then through verse two. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a season of great harvest, Their abundance of resources and their extreme wealth gave way to the opportunity for them finally to be able to give back a little. Now, I'm messing with you, right? That's not what it says. No, it says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So we generally associate affliction with misery, but Paul says the afflicted Macedonians are experiencing joy, an abundance of joy, in fact. And generally, we associate poverty with the inability to give, but Paul says the impoverished Macedonians are practicing generosity, overflowing with a wealth of generosity, in fact. So when we think of funding our initiative or when we think of finding customers for our business, we generally think, go where the money is. Talk to the wealthy benefactors. Set up shop in the wealthy 
part of town. But Paul understands the upside down values of the kingdom of God, where the humbled are exalted, where the last are first, where the meek will inherit the earth. And so when he's looking for an example of generosity, it's the impoverished, afflicted Macedonians that stand out. Grace-driven generosity thrives through terrible circumstances because it's not about our circumstances. It's about God's grace. Our circumstances change. They get better, they get worse, but God's grace never changes. There is a river of grace that flows from the foot of the cross and it covers you and it covers me forever washing away your guilt, covering your shame, purifying you, body and soul. And when you have an experience of grace like that, then giving is a joy, even when circumstances are bad. A second mark of grace-driven generosity, giving above and beyond. It includes giving Above and beyond. So let's keep going here. Again, backing up to verse 2 through verse 3. The apostle writes, For in a severe test of affliction, the Macedonians' abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and Beyond their means. So Paul here can sense, perhaps, skepticism of the Corinthian audience. So he feels the need to add, I can testify. I can bear witness. The Macedonians gave according to their means and they gave beyond their means. I saw it. In other words, they gave beyond what anyone would have required. They gave beyond what anyone would have expected. In fact, Paul is later going to say in verse 5, this is not what we expected. So hear this. It wasn't the Apostle Paul's expectation of what they would give that drove them to give. Like, oh yeah, you guys better give a lot. I'm expecting you to give a lot. No, it wasn't that. It was God's grace that drove them to give. And so they gave above and beyond. So just four days from now is one of the most dreaded unholidays of the year, tax day. I actually have on my Microsoft Outlook calendar the little checkbox clicked that adds all of the U.S. holidays onto my calendar automatically. And I checked, yes, they consider tax day a holiday. That's Microsoft. I guess they celebrate tax day. But it's usually an unholiday. It's usually dreaded for us. And one of the reasons that we put so much effort into paying our taxes is because we don't want to pay a cent more than is absolutely necessary. I want to know precisely what's expected of me, and I want to pay that amount and not a penny extra. I even pay somebody, a tax accountant, so that I don't have to give any more to the IRS than is required. And I'm filing for all of the deductions that I can, trying to get that amount down. 
It's not that I don't love our country. It's not that I don't want to pay my taxes. I just don't want to pay any more than I have to. But that is the exact opposite mindset for these Macedonian Christians as they think about the opportunity to give to their brothers in Jerusalem. They give beyond their means. They give beyond the apostles' expectations. They give sacrificially. In other words, they give until it hurts. They give until they feel the pinch. They don't give as long as it's convenient. They don't give as long as it fits into the budget. No, their budget takes a hit. Their budget feels it because they're so generous. And again, the reason they're happy to give sacrificially is because they have experienced the sacrificial love and the costly grace of God. God loved us to the point of sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice imaginable, his son on the cross in our place. God's grace is not cheap. It's costly. It cost him everything, essentially, his beloved son. And so when you receive the sacrificial love and when you freely receive God's precious grace, then it enables you to practice grace-driven generosity, even giving above and beyond what is expected. So brothers and sisters, I'm not going to stand up and browbeat you into giving more and more. No, I'm gonna stand up here week after week and champion the grace of God in Jesus. The immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus because grace is what we need to transform our lives and grace is what motivates above and beyond giving. Giving through affliction and poverty, Giving above and beyond, giving with eagerness. Grace-driven generosity includes giving with eagerness. So look once more at verse 3 and then all the way through verse 4. Paul writes, For the Macedonians gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So the first hint we get at the Macedonians' eagerness to give is that little phrase, of their own accord. What Paul means is, I didn't force them. They gave of their own volition. This wasn't me pulling my apostolic rank, forcing them to give. They gave of their own accord. Then as we read in verse 4, Paul goes on to note that they asked, they begged earnestly the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So do you see how, the, how remarkable the Macedonians' mindset had shifted because of the impact of the gospel in their lives? For them, it was a favor to them to be able to give to the relief of somebody else. So normally, we think, we think of it in just the opposite way. Oh, I'm doing you a favor. Here's some money. Here's a donation. But the Macedonians are eager to give because it's a favor to them to be able to give. Again, normally, it's just the opposite. 
Normally, we're eager to get because I want the favor. But for the Macedonians, they're eager to give because they want the favor. Normally, we're eager to get because the stuff that we get makes us happy. I got a new truck. I got a new computer. I got a new house. And all of these things make me feel happy. I feel favored. My new truck looks good. My computer works well. My house feels comfortable. And so I'm eager to get these things. But the Macedonians are eager to give of themselves because they're not so focused on themselves. They're not so focused on their happiness. They're not so focused on their comfortability. Instead, they're focused on other people. In this case, the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who are experiencing persecution and hardship for their faith in Christ. Because you see, the grace of God in the gospel frees us from self-obsession. Because at the heart of God's grace is the cross of Christ. This ultimate act of selflessness where Jesus considered others more significant than himself. So when we've been transformed by the grace of Christ, then we likewise start to count others more significant than myself. So my neighbor, my Christian brother, we are equal in value in God's sight. But I am called to consider them, I am called to relate with them as more significant than me. But you see, if I'm at the center of my universe, then I am going to be interested in getting and keeping. I'm going to be eager to obtain for myself and hoard for myself if I'm the center of my universe. But if we repent of our self-centeredness, and instead put the cross-bearing Savior at the center of our lives, then we will become similarly eager to give and emulate our selfless Savior. That's grace-driven generosity. Giving through affliction and poverty, giving above and beyond, giving with eagerness, and fourthly, giving to others out of commitment to the Lord. Giving to others because of commitment to the Lord. So starting in verse 4, going into verse 5. This is the final detail Paul gives about the Macedonians' generosity. He writes, They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. So do you see this? The Macedonians were enabled to give generously because they had first given themselves to the Lord. And it was out of their devotion to their gracious God that prompted their gracious giving. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the grace of God to us. So the way to promote giving in your own life is to first give yourself 
fully to God. And having given yourself in commitment to God, it's going to naturally lead to giving yourself, giving your resources to those in need. This is right in line with what Jesus taught about the greatest commandment. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this in verses 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. With every part of who you are, love the Lord your God. That's the first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So do you see how love for God is followed right on the heels by love for neighbor? Or we could put it this way. The best way to promote love for people in your heart is to promote love for God in your heart. Loving God leads to loving people. Similarly, the best way to promote giving and a generous spirit towards people is to first give yourself to the generous God. Commitment to the generous God leads to becoming a generous person. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the grace of God, they gave themselves to us. So church, we must ask ourselves, what is first in your life? What is the most important thing to you? What have you given yourself to fully? For a lot of us, it's our careers. For a lot of us, it's our children. For a lot of us, It's money or a relationship or our possessions. These are things that can be first for us. Many of them good things. They're good things that we make God things. They're good things that we give God status to. We put them first in our lives. But the Macedonian Christians exemplify for us a better way. They give themselves first to the Lord, and this enables them to give freely, to give joyfully, to give themselves to other people in generosity. This is what grace-driven generosity looks like. It's not about shaming you to give. It's not about forcing you to give. It's not about making you feel so bad that you feel like you have to give. It's about joyfully giving, joyfully giving. It's about seeing giving not as a favor you're doing for someone else, but a favor to you to be able to give to someone else. It's about being so filled with the selfless, endless sin-erasing, joy-producing grace of God that you become a generous person. So I want to end this morning in the same way that I hopefully end every sermon, not calling you to giving, but calling you to Christ. Trust in Him. 
Turn from your sin to him. Make him the center of your life. Allow him to sit on the throne of your heart. Make him first in your life. Make him the center of your life. His grace is free for all of us to receive. God's grace is free for all of us to receive, covering our sin, freeing us from shame. His grace is free. And at the same time, his grace is costly, calling us to die to ourselves, calling us to live for him, not live for ourselves, calling us to consider others more significant than ourselves. Church, let's trust in Jesus and become like Jesus, bearing the fruit of generosity. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of Jesus, the one whom you gave Your only son sent to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise so that we too could walk in newness of life. God, if you were stingy, if you were a hoarder, if you were unwilling to share, we would all die in our sins we would all perish without hope. And so God, we come before you thankful. We come before you and acknowledge that we are recipients. We would be forever impoverished if you did not give to us. We would be forever empty if you did not fill us. We are recipients, Father, and we thank you. Lord, at the same time, we acknowledge that we can be unwilling to give. We can be stingy. We can be greedy. And so we pray, Father, that the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit would enable us to give with joy, with joy even. And so, Father, do this work. This is what only you can do. We don't want to force this. God, we want generosity to happen by the power of your spirit and light of your grace. And so do this work, God, even as we reflect on the salvation that we've received in this last song and we say to you, thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.